Welcome back to High Crimes and Misdemeanors. I'm Allie. And I'm Christine. And it's been a minute. It has. We had vacations and flare-ups and nonsense. And getting arrested. Getting arrested. <laughs> <laughs> so much. So much. But we're back. And it's episode 14. We're 14. Yep. Which you just told me. I had to go look it up. It's I, been that long. I couldn't remember. Sorry, guys. We never promised consistency. We promised hilarity. And we always have delivered on that. Yeah. Just, you know, ADHD, neurodivergence, <laughs> moms, busy lives, lots of work. So what's new with you? Oh, same shit, different day. It's our busy season at work, so I am going crazy at work. The child is going crazy because it's summer mm-hmm. and she's bored. Yes, of course. Um, but other than that, I'm I'm going back to school for marketing and I'm working on my candle business and it's going to be great. Hell yeah. I'm going to be making candles that smell like weed strains. I love that. Uh, but it's going to be like a little bit less weed and a little bit more of the strain smell, the mm-hmm. terpene smell. So that'll right. be fun. Yummy. What about you? What's going on? I mean, as I said, I got arrested. A group of us, five of us, um, went into the governor's office in New Hampshire, and we asked him to show up and promise his constituents that he wasn't going to sign into law an abortion ban and a critical race theory ban. And uh, he didn't show. He didn't show. He signed it into law. New Hampshire is now back decades Mm -hmm. from where we were but you know we continue to show up and fight the good fight and do the things so um i will be going to court and gladly taking responsibility and saying yes i did that and here's why and i'm privileged in my ability to do so so yep i'm lucky there but other than that like all the other less exciting work things yeah um, getting back from vacation is always like really hard after so disappearing hard. into no signal for a week. It was coming back and like, mm-hmm. there's so many people and they all want something. Yep. And man, oh. it's just constant. It's constant. But I have to tell you about, um, my serotonin dump, uh, during vacation. I rediscovered my love of the K. Scarpetta books. Um, like, they're just wonderful. I don't know if you ever got into them, but basically it's Patricia Cornwell's series of, like, a forensic coroner. And it's all, like, Ooh. crime drama, like, Ooh. paperback. Just those fun reads. We'll have to put a link in the, the episode for this one. I read, like, four of them on vacation. I did so much reading. It oh, was I bet that felt amazing. Everything I needed. And, yeah, they're just so much fun. And they're not real in any way. <laughs> but they don't need to be. Right. I enjoy them. And then... reality. Yeah. I'm really tired of reality right now. Yeah. Just tired in general. But other than that... I've been having trouble finding something good to watch. We just started re-watching American Gods because we only mm. got through the first season before we lost access for a while, but now we have access again, so we're starting over. Yeah. So. it. I wanted it to grab me. You know I my know. love of American Gods. I know. You know where that love comes from. I do. Your wonderful partner. And, like, I was so excited, and it just didn't feel like American Gods. No. Do you think I should give it another shot? Like, is it better the second go-through? I don't know, because we're still back on season one, which I thought okay. was amazing the first time we watched it. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll let you know it's just how it book. goes. It's, always, it's never the book. I know. I don't know why I do this to myself. I, I yeah. always do, though. It's never going to be good enough. It's never good enough. It's never good enough. Oh, well, I mean... We have done everything other than disclaimers. Well, we can certainly do that. First of all, this is high crimes and misdemeanor. We are in a legal state and consuming cannabis. Mind your business. Yeah, the name is intentional. Uh, we swear a lot. Um, Super left, willing to get arrested for things. Obviously, that was implied, but if you hadn't caught on, 
um, conservative viewpoints and victim blaming doesn't exist here. We're not going to do it. It's just disgusting. No, thank you. Fuck off. Yeah. Um, also, we talk about things in a way that could be perceived that we're laughing at the worst moments in human history and, like, the degradation of humanity. That is not the case. We are never laughing at the victim. But life always provides plenty of opportunities for stupid. Right. As does trauma, which we're working through with our therapist. Absolutely. <laughs> Call it character building. So, dark humor is a thing. You don't have to like it, but it will not go away. And that's who we are and what we do. So episode 14, man. Welcome to the niche. And otherwise... I'm up first this week. It's you. It's me. So... So I am bringing you a lovely woman who got her just desserts. Nice. She's, um, she's serving life in prison, but... And we'll go over that in just a few minutes. All right. Well, we'll catch up and then we'll be right back. Yay! All right. Welcome back to episode 14. I'm going to tell you the sordid tale of Professor Amy Brown. No, Amy Bishop. Excuse me. Okay. Oh, she got a sour lollipop, and she's definitely doing the bitter beer face. It really is so sour, but it keep is. going. Ignore my face. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start off with the final event, the one that she is known in infamy for. Okay. 2010, University of Alabama in Huntsville shooting. Okay. This happened February 12, 2010, during the course of a routine biology department meeting, um, attended by about 12 individuals. Mm -hmm. About 30 to 40 minutes in, Dr. Amy Bishop stands up, pulls out a 9mm, and starts shooting her co-workers on the other side of the table and just going down the line. Three people died as a result. Four others survived. And Amy was taken into custody without incident. Um, she was in complete denial afterward. She was roaming around saying, that can't be true, they're still alive. Like, that, that didn't happen. Obviously, something is not quite right. She had a case in the Mondays. She sure did. Well, this started because Amy Bishop, Dr. Amy Bishop, graduated from Harvard. Brilliant woman. Oh, hold on. And she was the second cousin of Irving. Excuse me, a liter uh, writer by the name of Irving. Um, so she was trying to tout her experience as well as her familial ties with a famous author right. to pimp out her own books. She had written three um, unpublished books about a scientist who was helping to figure out a pandemic and fighting misogyny. And by all accounts, it sounds like it was grade A trash, but... Whoa. When was this, though? Um, she started at the Alabama University in 2003 as an associate professor. Okay, so this was prophetic. Yes. Cool. This was long time coming. So she spent nine years, or, yeah, nine years at the University of Alabama, but was denied tenure in March of 2009. Okay. And the her tenure was denied was they said that she concentrated more on patents than published research um and also she was erratic and made people uncomfortable her behavior at the college um had gone noticed there was a petition that was signed by dozens of students to have her removed from class Whoa. saying that she was ineffectual in class and that her methods were odd and unsettling and that she made people uncomfortable um oh something PPK. something serious uh because after the arrest in 2012 where she shot six people Right. Um, in the phase of the meeting. I mean, I've been in those meetings. I mean, we've all had that impulse. We've all been in those meetings, but I've never done, done it. Nor would I <clears throat> to anyone from my work. And this wasn't, this wasn't a random occurrence. This was absolutely targeted. So she was denied tenure in March of 2009. And so she was wrapping up her final year. This was going to be her final semester um, by the policy of the college. She'd lost all of her appeals. She wasn't getting tenure. And she was about to get booted out. Fuck. 
Yep. So she took out a nine millimeter and targeted the person right next to her and then just went down the line. Right. Um, so in accordance with wanting to honor the victims first, I'm going to tell you their names. Yes, please. Um, it was Dr. Gopi Padilla, who is the chairman of the biology department. He, he is deceased. Dr. Maria Raglan Davis. She was a biology professor. Adriel D. Johnson, Sr., another biology professor. Louis Regello Cruz Vera, biology professor, was released from the hospital um, a little while later. Okay. Um, Joseph Leahy was uh, another biology professor, released a couple of months after the incident. Um, And then Stephanie Monticillo, who was a staff assistant, um, she also survived as well. And she was actually credited with, with being the reason that more people survived. Because as she got down the line, um, her gun jammed. And that allowed them to push her out of the room and close the door. And then she wandered wandered out and was picked up by the police outside. So Stephanie was the one that, like, pushed her out the door then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's what happens when you put women in charge. Mm -hmm. So Amy is married to Dr. James Anderson, another scholar. Okay. like person. And after the shooting in Alabama, there was a quick inquiry into other incidents that happened. This is not the first time that Amy's resorted to violence. Oh. When Amy was 21 years old, okay. um, she actually shot and killed her brother, Seth Bishop, on December 6, 1986. Oh. At their home in Braintree, Massachusetts. Shit. She had fired at least three shots from a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, one into her bedroom wall, one into her brother's chest, and then one into the ceiling on the way out the door. Mm-hmm. It gets even worse. She grabs that shotgun, runs out the door, and then tries to um, hold up a car dealership and get a getaway car. It doesn't work. She gets picked up right. and is taken in. They rule everything as an accident. Because this happened in front of her mother, her parents swear it was an accident, and they kind of went with that. Whoa, 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 Even if, even if she accidentally shot her brother, mm-hmm. you cannot accidentally hold up a car dealership and try to steal a car. Mm-hmm. And then the files go missing for decades. The fuck? It just kind of gets pushed under the rug. The fuck? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And then in 1994, her and her husband were actually both questioned as suspects in a pipe bomb incident where a... The... Her supervisor at the Harvard Children's Hospital Uh was mailed a set of two pipe bombs that did not explode when they opened. Amy and her husband were both questioned as suspects, but I guess they couldn't pull together enough Enough proof. So that kind of just went under the radar as well. Holy fuck. Okay. Okay. So the incident in 1986... They say it was an accident cleaning the gun or unloading the gun. Mm-hmm. However, in the files that were recovered in 2010, because they mysteriously reappeared, they found in her room, in Amy Bishop's room, um, a bunch of magazine clippings about the tragedy that happened to actor Patrick Duffy, where a shotgun-wielding teenager killed his parents and then held up a car dealership and got a getaway truck. She had these articles in her room before she shot her brother. To emulate Patrick Duffy. Uh, Just as an idea for how to get away from an incident. But I have no idea. So, with the pipe bomb going nowhere, Mm -hmm. the... Killing of her brother, Seth, going nowhere. Right. Whoopsies. Yeah. Eh, Mulligan. 
Yeah. There was another incident that happened at an IHOP, and this is fantastic. At an IHOP? At an IHOP. International House of Pancakes, yo. So, she was charged with and pleaded guilty to misdemeanor assault and disorderly conduct and received probation for punching a woman in the head who'd received the last booster seat at an IHOP. And according to the police report, when she came in, asked for a booster seat for her children, because yes, this woman is procreated. She asked for a booster seat and the waitress said, I'm so sorry, we just gave the last one to to that person over there. Amy went over and demanded it because she was a big deal. And apparently she started screaming, I'm Dr. Amy Bishop, don't you know who I am? And punched this lady in the head. So she was picked up by cops and got probation for this. And then in 2010, she shoots up her meeting at the Alabama International House of Poor Probation. Yeah. <clears throat> so after she's arrested for the shooting at the University of Alabama Huntsville, mm-hmm. the records come back on her brother and the... Massachusetts district attorney um, decided that there was enough evidence to charge her with the murder of her brother. Um, So they added those charges on as well as the charges that she acquired from her shooting. When she took a plea deal in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table. Right. Which only happened because the families of the victims and some of the the victims, the surviving victims, all wrote letters and said that they they didn't think that the death penalty would would do any good. They all wanted it off the table. So even after she killed three of them, permanently blinded another, and traumatized so many, so many, what they an still they still said she's you know. Don't murder's not going to to save this. So they they asked for the death penalty to be taken off. She pleaded guilty, and so now she is serving life in prison mm-hmm. without the possibility of parole. So she will be in prison forever. Thank Obviously. goodness. Yes. <clears throat> but it's interesting how this woman, who displayed a pretty volatile disposition yes. from a really early age, documented, documented was allowed to get to this. And the husband didn't get any charges, even though he took her to um, a shooting range, like, the week before the shooting. And... Well, he's a supportive spouse. He really was. Way too supportive. That's her ride or die. It must be, because... (laughs) That's a whole lot. Honey, I want to mail some pipe bombs to my boss. He pissed me off. You got it, babe. Let's fucking do this. Fuck that guy, of course. I got you, babe. I got you. So that's that's Dr. Amy Bishop, and that is bananas. I mean, it had to be... It's some kind of undiagnosed personality disorder. Absolutely. And we don't know what trauma is there or what personality disorder is there. But So then there is something to be said about the fact of intention when in an unregulated or unmedicated manic state. Can one be fully responsible for their actions? And I'm not saying yes or no. This isn't me arguing. This is me, like, asking the question, trying to have the conversation. And that was exactly what they they debated over um, at her sentencing and her... right. throughout this entire process was, you know, we're not saying she didn't do this. We're not saying that it was someone else. She did this. She stood up in a meeting and shot seven people. Right. But was she aware of her actions? Was she aware of right and wrong? Was she responsible for her actions? And unfortunately, all the signs here point to that this was premeditated. Mm -hmm. And then she sat in that meeting for 30 to 40 minutes looking down at the table Mm -hmm. while everyone else goes on about the normal meeting. Right. And then stood up without emotion, 
pulled out a nine millimeter and started shooting people in the room. A hundred percent. And I'm not arguing that, but I am saying that premeditation while in a manic phase is possible. Like I've seen Mm. it. I've had clients that have unmedicated BPD and I've watched them make these plans, like very solid thought out plans that aren't based in reality at all. But there is a point A to point B plan in place. And when they come out of it, they're very much like, what the fuck was I thinking? Yeah. And we're not quite sure what she was thinking. She has been pretty tight But they didn't evaluate it. her. Her defense team never had her evaluated. I didn't see anything in mm. regards to that. I don't believe that they really went for any kind of insanity defense. Mm-hmm. I think they all recognized that with her previous history of violence that she belonged behind bars and they were satisfied with that. Absolutely. And this is not me arguing against Amy being behind bars. This is me arguing where the bars live. Right. And why why isn't she still being right. treated for an obvious mental illness? And this is what I advocate for when we talk about abolishing the prison system. Mm-hmm. Is I am not in favor of abolishing psychiatric, like forensic psych- psychiatric units. I believe that there are people that are a danger to society and should not be released to the public. And this is based in science. This is based in fact. But there are facilities available, especially if we fund them, where these people can live and at least, if not rehabilitated, treated. Treated. And that's what I don't think Dr. Amy Bishop is ever going to get. She's never going to get treatment. She didn't get treatment when she was young and lashing out. Um, All of these events seem to happen in times of high stress for her. Right. Right. Um, and rejection. And rejection. Severe rejection dysphoria, mm-hmm. which we know in a lot of personality disorders and neurodivergent behaviors is a major trigger. And for someone that is out of control, whether she was disassociating or it was mania, whatever, I don't know her diagnosis. Nope. But like that is going to trigger something very intensely for mm-hmm. her. And the argument. Um, there was conflicting information in the 1986 report as to whether or not she was arguing with her brother or her father at the time of the shooting. Her mother still swears everything was an accident. Um, so there was something really stressful there. The incident in 1994, she had gotten a bad review from her supervisor. Then he gets pipe bombs. Right. She, I don't know what was going on in 2002 or 2003 at the IHOP, but she may not have been medicated. It may have been a high stress time for her if she had small children and wasn't getting treatment. All the time is a high stress time if you're a parent. Right. Especially with young kids who still need booster seats. I'm sure she was sleep deprived and unmedicated. Um, And then in 2010, she was going to lose her job. She's she was lose done. Everything. She'd spent 10 years trying to gain tenure and she was fucked on it. Yep. It was done. It was over. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <coughs> and I, I think it's an injustice, not only to Amy because she's never going to get treatment, but it's an injustice to her victims because someone in that state is never going to be able to take responsibility enough to feel feel that responsibility or that guilt or Mm -hmm. I, I just, uh, all around, it's very unfair, you know? And in 2003, when they moved to Huntsville, she had developed a new type of portable cell incubator and won a $25,000 statewide business competition. Um, so like brilliant woman, brilliant woman that could have changed the world for good. But her behaviors were erratic and growingly more erratic over time. And antisocial. Yeah, absolutely. So because she was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, they are not going to pursue any additional charges in relation to her brother's murder. Yeah. Um, The Massachusetts District Attorney has basically said, like... She's where she needs to be. 
that's fine. We're, we're not going to have her extradited to Massachusetts and go through this all over again. Well, and no one's calling for justice for her brother either. Exactly. So they were fine sweeping it under the rug. So Massachusetts said, well, at least she's behind bars and we can just turn our turn our cheek again. Right. So, yeah, that's Dr. Amy Bishop. Wow. Wow. What escalation? That did escalate quickly it was a roller coaster i mean like shotgun to the chest right pipe bomb punch a lady in the head at an ihop shoot an entire biology department that that's all out of harvard that's that's a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah that is that is she was white right oh absolutely this was absolutely a white woman from harvard losing her goddamn mind absolutely oh wow what a good one okay I, not that I want to top you, but I have a roller coaster of a case myself. Ooh, okay. So it might be roller coaster themed today, huh? So, yeah, we're on the roller coaster. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back. Yay! All right, hold on. Okay. So, disclaimer. I do not speak Italian. Okay. I am a white girl from New England. Correct. I took three years of Spanish, two of Latin, can't speak either. Similar. So, I apologize to the entire country of Italy. Yeah. Because that's where this case is from. Ooh, okay. So, on that note, and on the note that I have consumed edibles... Um, and other things, and I'm feeling it now, we're going to begin. So, it's Friday, November 26th, 2010. It's like 5.15pm. 13-year-old Yara Gambrasio leaves her family home in Brimbate de Sopra to walk about a mile down the road to her local gym. So, Yara was a gymnast. She actually did rhythmic gymnastics. Okay. So, like, the batons and the ribbon dancing, just, like... Fiona's daydream. Cute, prepubescent gymnast shit, right? Oh, yeah. So that was Yara's jam. And she was supposed to have a competition that Sunday. So she told her family that she was going to head to the gym to drop off a stereo to her coach and that she would be right back. Okay. So Brimbate is like a tiny town, like Upper Valley, right? Okay. So like everyone knows everyone, knows everyone, knows everyone. Um, and it was super close by, so it wasn't a major concern. Yara heads out, and then time passes. By 7 p.m., Yara hadn't returned yet. And it's a small enough town where that was the moment of concern. Like two hours have passed, and she is not here we've got a problem. So they start calling her cell phone over and over and over again, but it just keeps going to voicemail. And then by 7.30, her dad had had enough waiting, and so they called the police. Um, I learned a bunch about Italy's system. Okay. So apparently calls like this are immediately put through to the public prosecutor's office. So like, the DA's office. Okay. And they have police that work specifically through the prosecutor's lens to totally have that case ready to go to trial. Okay. When and if there is a case, right? So um, the magistrate, that's the title that these people have, the magistrate on duty, her name was Leticia Ruggeri, and she received the call around 730. Um She had been a cop for 15 years by this point, so she knew a 13-year-old is missing. Time is of the essence in these cases. Absolutely. Like, we cannot wait. Um, And so she dispatched the state police and the, here we go, Italy, Carabinieri, which is military police. Oh, okay. So, um... I believe that's equivalent to our National Guard. Right, yeah, basically sort of kind of the same thing. So as soon as law enforcement's boots hit the ground, they started retracing Yara's steps. 
Um, her gymnastics coach confirmed that Yara had been to the gym. Okay. She dropped off the stereo and had done a little bit of light training before the competition, before heading out. Because what kid isn't going to dick around at the gym when you get there? Right. Especially because, like, the competition was coming up. She was super excited. She She had her coach there for five minutes. Hey, can you look at the thing? It was a passion. Absolutely. It makes total sense. And when they looked up Yara's cell phone records, they saw that she had sent a text message to her friend Martina at 6.44 that evening. So, like, 15 minutes before her family's like, oh, she's not here. Okay. And she and Martina were just talking about, like, making plans to meet up ahead of the competition. So, like, early in the morning to walk there. So, that's all that they could find immediately. Just that last text message, and they knew that she had been to the gym. So, Ruggieri throws everything at this case, and she pulls every tool out of the tool belt. So... They pull in bloodhounds from around the region. Um, it's a breed called Segugio Italiano. Oh, okay. Again, I'm sorry, Italy. So they had the dogs sent at the gym where she was last seen. And they were expecting that the dogs would start leading them back to Yara's house in Rubate de Sopra. But instead, they start going in a different direction towards like a hamlet or like a neighborhood called Mapello, and then they lose the trail in Mapello. Okay. So investigators were able to confirm through those phone records um, that the towers that Yara's phone had pinged off of that last night before it was turned off were in Mapello, but beyond that, that led to nowhere. Okay. So we know that she was walking of her own volition in a unusual direction while texting her friend. Right. And we don't even know if it was of her own volition, only that her scent went that way. And that the text message that she had sent to her friend Martina had been sent when she was in Mabello. So you're right in that it's likely that she went there on her own. But why? But why? And we don't know. So this is where it gets super interesting because it's fun to compare what Italian police can do and what our police can do. Okay. We've got police brutality, but they've got wiretaps, and that's way cooler somehow. So they put wiretaps on landlines in the region. What they did, which is freaking brilliant, was to compare every cell phone that had pinged off both the Brimbate Tower and the Mapello Tower on that evening, so they could triangulate everyone who was in that area. So they pulled they up had all those phone. names and they tapped those phones. Holy shit! Fifteen thousand landlines were tapped. Holy shit! One man named Mohammed Fikri became a person of interest because an interpreter that was listening to his conversation heard him say, "Forgive me, God, I didn't kill her." Ooh, but. When they looked into Mohammed, um, it looked like it was a possibility. He was working for a construction crew that was in the Mabello area at the time. Um, and furthermore, when they checked his van, they found a mattress covered in blood. What? Which ended up being blood from an animal that he had accidentally hit with his car. The translator had translated wrong. Mohammed is not our person. Oh, he was like, he felt so bad for killing an animal on the road. Yep. So this is going to be a recurring theme. Just hang with me. Okay. So, Mohammed is no longer a person of interest. Nothing else has come of the landlines. Autumn quickly turns into winter, and no one knows what happened to Yara. Her family continues to implore the public to share information that they might have, but still no leads appear. On February 26th, 2011, a man named Alario Scotti was out flying like a remote control airplane in this area close to Brambate called Cignolo de Sola. Again, I'm so sorry, Italy. But Ilario is having issues with his plane, and so he decides to, like, bring it down, crash landing so he can fix it. Yeah. So he just brings it down into the section of tall weeds in this field. And as he goes to pick up his plane, he sees a bunch of rags and he assumes that it's like an illegal dumping ground. Yeah, could be. 
which apparently is also called fly tipping in Europe. Didn't know this. Oh. Got very confused. Fly tipping. All right. Had to research what fly tipping meant, but it means like illegally dumping trash. Oh, okay. So it's his first assumption until he sees shoes. Oh. The body that is found is in an advanced state of decomposition, but the black bomber jacket and the Hello Kitty sweatshirt that's still identifiable quickly confirms that they had finally found Yara. Christina Cataneo, who is like Italy's most famous forensic pathologist. Okay. I can do this. She was called in to actually perform the autopsy because Yara's case had made like national media attention at this point. Absolutely. So she found traces of Lyme in Yara's respiratory system. Okay. Um, And there were rope fibers on her clothing. Uh, She had several multiple injuries, uh, had suffered multiple injuries from a sharp object. But her official cause of death was exposure. Oh. Yara had been attacked and then abandoned to the cold. Oh, poor baby. There was no obvious evidence of Yara being raped, but her bra had been unhooked. um, And they were able to gather DNA from Yara's underwear. Mm -hmm. According to the article that I read... It was from a blood sample that was on Yara's underwear. Not a semen sample. But they did find DNA. So they called their suspect Ignato Uno, which means unknown one. Okay. And that he was living on borrowed freedom because they had a DNA sample. Coming for you, motherfucker. I'm coming for you. So... Ruggieri and her team began the grueling task of tracking down everyone whose cells had pinged off both of those towers and asking them for a DNA sample this time. Okay. By the time Yara's funeral occurred in May of that year, police had collected thousands of DNA samples. Yeah, because you said it was like 15,000 landlines. Mm-hmm. So gather. Yeah. But still no leads. Oh my god. They did have a plan, though, and it had something to do with quicksand. With quicksand? Wait for it. Oh, what? this is a fun one. Okay. Okay. So, not far from where Yara was found so is a nightclub with a very bad reputation called Sabi Mobili. Do you know what that means in Italian? I do not. Quicksand. Oh, okay. Ruggieri knew from a long career that murderers tend to dump bodies in places where they're familiar. Correct. They're stomping grounds. So, for funsies, Ruggieri and her team started hanging out at the club on Friday and Saturday nights collecting DNA samples. Oh, okay. And then finally, one of these DNA samples had a hit. His name was Damiano Girinoni. Girinoni. I'm. So, this is going to be so hard. He's a frequent club uh, club goer, and Damiano had a connection to Yara. His mother was their maid for ten years. She was their housekeeper. Whoa. Yep. So he knew Yara. He knew Yara. There's one problem though. Damiano was in South America the day that Yara disappeared corroborated so it's not damiano but it's somebody related to damiano yeah right the dna was just too similar to let it go damiano had to be related to ignato uno so the team decides that they're gonna get into some ancestry.com shit and start building the garonini tree uh damiano's father was quickly excluded he was going to be my, he was going to be my, like, go-to guy. Yeah, it's not his dad. But his uncle Giuseppe, which is the most Italian name right? ever, is the next stop on the tree. Okay. Even if he had died in 1999. So, police visit uh, Giuseppe's widow, and they were able to obtain a DNA sample from two stamps he licked before he passed away. And the results came back definitively. Giuseppe was the father of Ignato Uno. Whoa. Okay. Giuseppe and his widow Laura had two boys, Pier Paolo and Diego. Both offered a DNA sample. No issue. 
neither were a perfect match to the suspect. Oh, Uncle Giuseppe's got a love child out there somewhere. Okay. So, Uncle G is the father of Ignato, but neither of his known sons match. As you said, that can mean only one thing. He has an illegitimate child somewhere. So, they start diving into Giuseppe's background. He was a local bus driver, and his co-workers would refer to him as a man's man. Which meant that he was just a womanizer. Yeah, that he was a misogynistic piece of shit. Like, he got around a lot. A lot. And apparently, he had admitted to one of his friends that he had gotten one of his young women in trouble. That's code for preggers. And after months of trying to track down who this woman was, they got a name from an anonymous source. The woman's name was Esther Arzufi. Esther had been a neighbor to Giuseppe and Laura in the 60s. And in 1966, uh, Esther had been 19 and stuck in a very unhappy marriage. Stuff happened. And the neighbor fathered a baby. Apparently, in 1970, Esther moved away and gave birth to twins. One girl and one boy. The boy's name... Massimo Giuseppe Bossetti. Bitch, you knew damn well. Massimo is 42, married with three children, living in Mapello, and is a builder. Well, here we go. When the investigators compared Esther's DNA to Ignotos, they got the confirmation that they had been looking for for months, which is that she was the killer's mother. They knew it was Massimo. So law enforcement moved quickly and they set up a fake DUI checkpoint. This is some soap opera shit. Of course they were twins. On June 15th, Massimo comes through their fake DUI checkpoint. They lied to him and told him that it hadn't worked the first time. So he had to do it twice so they could get two samples. They rushed these samples to the lab for immediate overnight testing, and the results were conclusive. Massimo was Ignato Uno, and he had killed Yara. He was arrested the following day. When police went to his house and started looking into his background and his life, they found plenty of circumstantial evidence as well. Uh, Bossetti had frequently hung out in the area around Yara's home, uh, he parked his car behind the gym where she trained. He ate uh, at a pizzeria on her road. He'd started tanning at a local shop in her neighborhood. Just but, creepy and always there. Yeah. The search history on his computer said plenty. Oh, no. Showing a very strong interest in young girls. Naturally. And his phone records show that he was present in Brabate de Sopra on the night of Yara's disappearance, but that he had switched off his phone at 5.45 p.m. He followed her. And didn't turn it back on until 7.34 the following morning. Gross. On July 1st of 2016... The Corte de Assisi of Bergamo sentenced Bassetti to life imprisonment. In July of 2017, the Court of Appeals of Debrecia upheld that verdict. In October of 2018, the Court of Cassation confirmed Bassetti's life sentence. And in November of 2019, Bassetti's defense lawyers have asked for a revision of the DNA evidence. And that was an accepted request as of January of this year. What? Which means that Massimo might get an appeal. So to round out this crazy story, I want to read an excerpt from one article that I'm going to post, as always, where my sources are. But here's the the blurb, if you will. Meanwhile, three families are dealing with the devastation of the case. Giranoni's widow has been forced in the autumn of her life to come to terms with her husband's infidelity and the existence of his other children. Meanwhile, just as he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, 
Giovanni Bossetti became the nation's most famous cuckold, learning at the same time as the rest of the country that none of his three children are his. Leaks from the investigation revealed that Esther Arzufi's third child, Fabio, also had a different father. (laughs) The marriage of the accused Massimo Bossetti has also come under strain. Since his defense sought to portray him as a family man, two people have come forward to claim that they had affairs with his wife. Such is the local loathing for Bassetti that since his arrest, his twin sister, herself coming to terms with both her brother's fate and the fact that the man she thought was her father is not biologically related to her, has twice been beaten up. Her mother, Esther Arzufi, still denies that she's ever been unfaithful to her husband. She's really going with the shaggy defense. I, I believe you mean to say she's going with the Virgin Mary defense? Really? You have DNA evidence that they got from going all the way around the elbow to get to the asshole. Mm-hmm. Like, there's... Oh, honey, come on now. But, like, that regionally is how you have to respond. Like, it's still a very Catholic region, like a very religious region, a very closed region. Like, some of the articles go into, like, this very in-depth regional anthropology report, basically. It's really interesting. There's no way I could have included all of it in this little blurb. But there's a lot of dynamics at play in this story that like I as an American don't under don't get don't get or can really speak to like I'm I'm Irish I'm Irish American like yeah I get the Catholic thing a little bit and I get the like super loud strong women thing but other than that I don't get the machismo Irish men don't pretend unless they're drunk at a bar yeah that's the only time that they pretend that they're in charge No, no, otherwise they know damn well. But in this case, there's, like, a lot of machismo at play that I just, I don't understand it. Like, just say, DNA is telling on you, Esther. How do you still, with DNA evidence, go, no, uh I didn't, though. I didn't do it. I didn't do it, though. And that's what Massimo did, too. I mean, he's still saying to this day that he's innocent. But they all do. DNA, buddy. Like, really clear DNA. And the way that, like, the the magistrate tracked this down and, like, the, just, like, the cold, hard scientific basis of this story was what just grabbed me. Right. I'm like, this is... Like, nuts. this man would have gotten away with this murder. If you didn't sink your teeth in and not let go, like, she did everything i can't think of a murder investigation that had this level of scope we didn't do this for jean benet absolutely not Fifteen thousand landlines thousands of dna samples like this is how you respond and this is how if you're gonna have a judicial system that's another debate for another day i think this is how you do it yeah you base it in science you don't like cops run with their gut feelings yeah you you follow the evidence and you base your police work around getting that evidence i thought that was so cool and that's not how we do things here no no that's not how we investigate murders. We rely on cops' gut feelings. Uh, just like in my case, the cops who were, you know, close with the family just went, oh, I'm sure it was just an accident. It was fine. But an 18-year-old boy was shot in the chest with a shotgun. Right. Right. And, like, it's such a cultural shift because I think for us, the reasoning behind that is this idea that you are innocent until proven guilty. Which, as a sentiment, is great, but it does it means that we're not building a case towards guilt while we investigate. Right. And then you don't have a case to bring to trial that's, like, ready to go. Yep. I don't and, know. And, a, and an entire case can be completely undone because it wasn't handled through the eyes of a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. I think that that 
switching the way they go about that is brilliant. It is. And I know <laughs> because of my recent rereadings of the Cave Scar Petabooks is apparently New York has a very similar system to this. Okay. Um, that while it doesn't like those calls don't go to the prosecutor's office, the prosecutor is in that police station as soon as like a case hits their desk and they're looking at it through that lens, which finally explains to me law and order. Right? I never understood why these lawyers were getting so involved, but apparently that's the thing. That's how they do it. And I think it's brilliant. And I think that they've, they've set up a case where, like, it's indefensible. Massimo yeah. is, like, trapped. And he should be. But he's only trapped because of pure freaking science. He turned off his phone. He would, he would have gotten away with it. Mm-hmm. He wasn't stupid. And there was no connection. Like, if his half-brother hadn't gone to this one specific club, this one specific night, to donate his DNA and start unraveling the whole family tree, and, like, it, it wouldn't have happened. Mm-mm. It's like when I tell you how my dream is to put my DNA into one of those sites just to find someone that's a murderer in my family line. I want that. Sorry, Uncle Tommy. But, like, that would be so cool. And that's what happened here. And I just think that that's nifty. I think it's great. And it's a roller coaster of a case. (laughs) So we got roller coasters, but we ended up with the the right people in jail. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Backed by evidence Mm -hmm. science science bitch we like science we support science here at high crimes and misdemeanors we We support the science that brought us hybrids anywho Mm -hmm. do you want to tell the people where they can find us sure you can find us on all of the podcast platforms the itunes the apples the googles uh, you can find us at High Crimes and Misdemeanors. You can find us at High Crimes VT on Facebook and at our Gmail, High Crimes VT at gmail.com. And finally, if you've been here for a few episodes, please leave us a five star review on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. It just helps the algorithm get us to people that might appreciate our weird sense of humor the way that we appreciate you. Mm hmm. But otherwise, stay elevated and stay safe. I will do my best. Bye. Bye.